0: Welcome to Yolitics, the home of cold beer and hot takes on Texas politics.
1: <laughs> are, we, are we rolling yet? All right. Hey, uh, brand new episode of Yolitics here, and I have a guest host. Um, you may recognize that voice. Cynthia Izagiri is with us, and she brought her own drink. I actually... Cynthia, I have a, a whole bag full of beer that I brought because I didn't know what your taste buds were.
2: Well, Before you tell us
1: what's in yours. Very kind. Hold on a second. I have, I have mermaid and unicorns, mm. a blonde ale. This is one of my favorites. It's the agave americana from Wild Acre. Ooh, I like couple. agave? That's really good. Uh, a buddy of mine gave me this one. I haven't tried this one yet. This is called the Gem from uh, where's this from? Casa Agria specialty. Oh, oils. okay. This is Imperial Stout with cookies and cream-flavored coffee beans. Oh. It's totally Wheeler.
2: Yeah, that is very Wheeler. And he could probably use one right now, Wiley.
1: <laughs> I'm sure he's drinking more than beer right now. <laughs> he, his doctor probably gave him some good pharmaceuticals. Um, and I have, uh, this is another favorite of mine, too, from Wild Acre, uh, Ranch Style Pilsner. Nice. Okay, so which one are you going with? I'm going to have, uh, since you don't want any of these, you have your own drink. I'm going to have the... Um, to have the wrench style pills.
2: Good. Right. Yeah, I'll I'll take the agave home for Captain Awesome, my husband. If right, you don't mind, he likes beer. Home. So
1: you're not you don't want beer, but what are you uh, what are you drinking over there, Cynthia? Well, you know
2: I don't drink that much. I don't, period. I don't either. Yeah, I really don't. But when I do, I have acquired a taste for bourbon. Ooh.
1: Wow. Yeah. And and. You know, for our, our listeners, we're we're actually <laughs> physically at work right now, which we don't usually record the podcast at work. But you have a bottle of bourbon
2: mm-hmm. at your yes. desk
1: or did you just bring this in?
2: You know, Eric Sanchez with Republic National Distributing Company, who's a big fan of the show and of this podcast, yeah. uh, dropped off Four Roses Small Batch Select. So I'm looking forward to tasting it. He didn't give me one of these. Well, I'm sure that can be he's, um, he's arranged.
1: Not, he's not that big of a fan, evidently. <laughs> uh, but we also have, since this is your,
2: you know what I didn't know, this is your first podcast ever? My first attempted podcast ever. Wow. Well, let the listeners des- decide whether I pulled it off. <laughs> I,
1: I, did, I did not know that, which is, it, thanks for, uh, for doing this with us. We appreciate it. Um, so Wheeler's out for a few more weeks. Mm-hmm. You and I have been talking for a few weeks about this. Um, but before we get into it, we, we did bring you, Give this to your husband, I guess. Right. Since he doesn't want it. A Aww, Yolotix nice pint glass. We have Yolotix garb here. a Huge budget uh, on the podcast. Oh, and we have uh, you know I'll give you a few more stickers for the kids.
2: Moving on up, yeah. I'll need three stickers. I just uh, can't right. hand out one. You
1: can't take one home. No. Nope. So, um, so no problem there. But we're going to tackle a a deep topic in this episode. It's something you've covered uh, for quite a while. Um, let's for our listeners who are like me. Mm -hmm. and haven't really followed the issues in Texas with Child Protective Services, CPS, Department of Family Protective Services, DFPS and foster care. Give us a high level view because I will scroll through my phone every so often and I will see headlines about unfortunately like a child died or children being taken advantage of, kids are sleeping in CPS offices. What the hell is going on?
2: Well, it's been going on for a long time, Whiteley. And I realized this when I started doing these Wednesday's child reports. And, uh, for listeners who may not be familiar with those, we team up with Child Protective Services, CPS, and we do our best to find a loving home for foster children in the system. But after 14 years of doing this, it has become very clear to me over the last decade that this system in the state of Texas is dysfunctional. Highly dysfunctional on many, many levels. The, and the state system, the state, the, state system, the bureaucracy. All of it dysfunctional because I see it firsthand. I talk with these foster children weekly. I talk with these CPS caseworkers weekly. So I've seen it firsthand from a professional basis. And then my husband and I, our family was called to adopt from the foster care system. So so then I saw the issues on a personal level. Mm. And so every single day now, Jason, I, I experience the dysfunction and the crisis that is CPS, both on a professional and on a personal basis. And so every day now, I have a reason to fight, to bring about awareness, and to try and educate our taxpayers.
1: This has been going on for, for years. There's been a federal lawsuit since what, 2011? For 2011, a now? but this has been going on before that. Also, it, where did things go wrong on this? How did Texas get get backwards on
2: this? That's a that's the million dollar question. Where did things go wrong? I can tell you, it didn't just happen over the last 10 years, and over the time period that we've been working here at WFAA, this started 30, 40 years back, and now it's, 30 or 40 years back. Yes, and now it has built. It has gone to a point now. When well, we keep hearing crisis, we keep hearing dysfunctional. Well, hopefully in this podcast, we'll be able to explain well what that means. So we have two guests
1: with us on this episode here. Uh, State Representative James Frank, he's a Republican from Wichita Falls. Uh, he's the chair of the House Human Services Committee. And I didn't know until you set all this up that Representative Frank or Chairman Frank is also uh, the parent of a foster
2: child he adopted. He and his family two two foster he adopted children. two boys. He already had four boys. God bless him <laughs> and his wow. family. So uh, Representative Frank speaks from the same experience yeah. I do, which is why both of us are so passionate about what's happening. Uh, he is practicing what he preaches, uh, and he's trying to bring about change. You know, he'll, there will be critics to that, but at least he's trying.
1: Well, our first guest, though, let's start with someone like you who is on the front lines of this, Heidi Brugel-Cox. Uh, she's on the line with us here, um, and, and tell us who Heidi is, what she is. Heidi, before before we get to you here, tell us who she is, Cynthia, how you met her, uh, et cetera.
2: First and foremost, Heidi is a true child advocate. Mm. She cares about these children and about helping them. I met her because we adopted our son uh, through, we got the help of, Gladney Center for Adoption. They were the agency we used. And she works there? She is their counsel. You know, she's the attorney that represents Gladney. And so she's a brilliant mind and she can better explain to the listeners when we talk about privatization, what that is, when we talk about CWAP, children without placement, what that means and really educate um, and help us understand when we talk about the system is in crisis, Heidi can help us understand what that means.
1: Hey, Heidi, thanks for being here. Let me ask you a super high level question on this. Um, I I have no association with the foster care system. I see the headlines. I'm scrolling through Twitter and a news story will pop up about all the problems they're having there. And they have had for a decade plus. Why in the world should I care about this issue?
3: Wow, Jason. I mean, number one, I think we all care about children. Number two, these children are in school with our children. They're growing up with our children. Number three, these children are going to be adults in our society and we want them to be as healthy as they can be. We don't want them aging out of a broken system just to end up in prison or you know, continuing to exacerbate the problems that we're seeing today. We want people to have a a healthy childhood in order to have a healthy adulthood.
2: Heidi, you're a fierce advocate for children and you said broken system. We hear that a lot along with crisis, the, the crisis that is CPS. For our listeners, can you please explain what that means? Texas is a huge
3: state and there are lots of different ways to do things and every area wants to do things differently. And you'll hear that from Representative Frank as well, I'm sure, and in many cases, I think it's the right thing to do to do things differently in different areas. Just getting around Houston is very different from getting around Lubbock, right? So there are differences in areas, um, but at the same time, you need to have some consistency in what you're doing. And so I know that Representative Frank is trying to address the consistency side. Um, What I am concerned about is that sometimes we're asking the wrong questions and trying to solve for the wrong problems. People will say abuse is terrible, but if it's just neglect, then we need to reconsider whether we do a removal. With neglect, you don't see the damage and that's the difficulty with abuse it's easier to see you have bruising and so it's easy for a worker to walk into a home and say there's absolute abuse because a child is is, uh, has marks on their body when someone says well there may be neglect but it's not bad enough to remove everyone is going to have a different view of what that is so the legislation that has been passed and what they will continue to look at i'm sure is a way to figure out how to um, have consistency where if I look at a situation, Cynthia, and you look at it, we come up with the same idea that yes, it's neglect or no, it's not. I think, I don't know that that's ever going to be totally possible, but I think the part of the brokenness is the people involved. Representative Frank will say that we have a lot of young people trying to make these decisions, and he is absolutely correct about that. Um, and, but, but we are trying to work this behemoth system and we're not focusing on the individuals in the system. And I think that's one of the biggest
2: issues. When you talk about not focusing on the individuals in the system, you're talking about foster children. I meet with them weekly. These children are suffering, um, Heidi. And I know that at Gladney Center for Adoption, y'all have a dorm for children who are in foster care as well, children who have come in with uh, severe behavioral issues, what do they tell you?
3: You know, for one thing they tell us they've been lied to by everyone. They're from their caseworkers to they feel like they've been lied to by their parents Uh, and by the time we get them they've been removed multiple times this is not their first time to be removed from a relative's home or their birth parents home so by the time we're seeing them as preteens and teenagers they have rotated through multiple times and that is That shows a brokenness. If we can't figure out what's the best path for that birth family and child earlier on, then we will never fix the situation that will allow these children to have healthy adulthoods.
1: Heidi, how in the world did we get here? Because I've been seeing these headlines forever, and it's, it's a political issue that has dogged, you know, legislature after legislature, governor after governor. How did we get here?
3: Boy, that's a million-dollar question or, or multi-million-dollar question, Jason. I honestly can't tell you. I think in the past, a lot of child welfare issues were kept. Um, people weren't that interested in it. Child welfare was not the sexy thing. Everyone's chasing after the shiny objects. Yeah. And now it's become – things have started exploding. It's now public when children are abused in foster care. That wasn't public in the past. So I think we're – You know, and along with everything being uh, online and the whole world is way more public now. So I think it has uncovered some abuses that have been going on probably for a long time that we just weren't aware of. No one was talking about it.
2: Mm. We keep hearing about this lawsuit, the lawsuit uh, that CPS has been dealing with since 2011, can you explain to us in brief what that lawsuit lawsuit is and how it came about?
3: So, there's an organization that has sued several states, actually, not just Texas. So, we are we're not we've not been singled out. And they uh, they come into the state. There are a number of children who were abused in the foster care system. They take that group of children, create um, a class of, of foster children, and sue the state. Uh, alleging that the state has not taken care of the children once they were removed and put into the foster care system. And then it takes several years of of investigation on that, doing discovery. Of course the state wants to try and limit what they can come after them for. So there, there's been a lot of um, legal maneuvering, which happens in any kind of litigation. This is not unusual for this. And now they finally have come in, had the trial. Judge Jack has created an order, and now it's about enforcing her order, and she has regular hearings. It's they're public. You're welcome to listen to them, and they are very hard to listen to. Uh, There is a lot of emotion and a lot of anger. Judge Jack is very concerned about the safety and welfare of the children in foster care. Um, At the same time, it's easy to take one situation, which is tragic, and make that the story of the entire state. So it's very complicated. Has it improved things? I'm yes. Has it created new complications? Absolutely, yes.
1: Heidi, what did the judge decide?
3: She decided that that these children were correct and that the state has not protected them the way the state should do that. So she created an accountability process, but she said state, if you can't have your own accountability, I'm gonna create accountability. And so now the state is paying for um, monitors to come in and evaluate what the state is doing. And that means the state is coming in and hiring more people to evaluate what every agency is doing and putting all the agencies on a more heightened monitoring um, plan. And, and is,
1: is any of that working? Is, is this outside oversight actually working?
3: I'm sure it's working in a lot of ways, um, but some people will say that it's also causing agencies not to take more difficult children.
2: Which is what led to C.W.A.P
3: which is part of what might have led to CWAP. I think there's always multiple layers. I don't know that anything can be laid at one place, but I know that if an agency can say no to a very difficult child, um, and I don't mean that there's any, it's not the child's fault. So I wanna be really clear about that, but a child has a trauma background that their behaviors are so difficult that the agency does not wanna be, they don't wanna take the risk of having something happen on their watch and then they be held accountable for something a child did, and then the agency gets punished for what the child did or what the foster home did in response to the child, or I mean, any multiple things.
2: As a result of these monitors, uh, they went in and found egregious uh, allegations of abuse in residential treatment centers across the state, uh, including uh, the refuge in in Bastrop. So. As a result, uh, the, the agencies, these agencies with these children with high behavioral issues shut down, and while they're investigating what happens at the agency, then the question arises, what do we do with all these kids?
3: Correct. Correct. <clears throat> and then you add to that new kids coming in hmm. and a- agencies being afraid to take the new kids in so you you keep layering one problem on top of another so that's correct and if the state said we're going to just get rid of the two or three bad actors in an agency and they don't shut down the agency then they run the risk of being called on the carpet for not shutting down the entire agency so you know the the state is in a very difficult position have they done everything well? Of course not. I don't think anyone would ever say that. I don't even think anyone at the state would say that, but are they trying to come up with solutions? Yes. Are they, you know, by having you check more boxes, does that do it? I don't think so, but are they requiring new trainings? Yes. Does that help? Yes. It increased the costs, no doubt. So when they talk about we've increased, we've increased uh, budget for the DFPS, Department of Family Protective Services, is that going to the service of the children or is that having to go to support all the additional costs of reporting Mm -hmm. and creating um, systems to show that you're doing the work you need to be doing for the children? I guess that is my biggest concern is that when I say we're not focusing on the individual's the children are not getting the services that they need. And even, I don't know, I'm not going to say more significantly, but just as significantly, their parents are not getting the services they need. When I review files of children who are coming into our, into our program, most of their birth parents were also in the child protection system. Mm -hmm. So you have an entire, you have a generation of parents who are, parent who are now traumatized, trying to be required to be good parents to the next generation. And there's no way that you can make that heavy lift. So I think until we go in and we address the trauma and everyone is trauma informed. So everyone uses that buzzword that, oh, yes, my work is trauma informed. But what are we doing with that information to help that Birth parents. So when they come into the department, they put them on a safety plan or a, a or a, you know a, a parenting plan, and they tell them you need to take anger management class. You need to have a drug rehab program. You need to take a parenting class. Okay. So if you have a drug problem, you need to examine what's behind that, not the not quit using drugs.
2: Are these yeah. mandates, or do these people have a choice as to whether they receive these programs?
3: Um, The courts mandate it, but uh, one of the good things about the new statutes that that Representative Frank passed is it's mandated to have an attorney at the front end before the plans start getting in place. The attorney can negotiate that. And I think that's where we need to educate the entire legal system to say, what's going to be helpful for your client? And we need people looking behind the behavior. When you have a child misbehaving, what's behind that? Is it a fear response? It, because usually it is. And let's address what's going on and the, the fear behind that. Is it just training these parents to say, wait, you can't spank a child. That's not going to be a good thing. Okay, well, what's another alternative to spanking if there's to, to get someone's attention? So, you, so that's parenting training. And that's, that's sort of the low hanging fruit. But I will tell you, there's so many excellent books about Research that's been done to say if you grew up in trauma and, and then you're all your brain is in fear all the time, whether you feel it or not, your body feels this constant fear. And then if you're trying to defend itself all the time, your body, then you're not going to be able to plan and give the nurturing and care for a child. So when they say it's just neglect, neglect this parent is not able to nurture a child and that child will not be able to nurture the next child and we are just continuing to continue the cycle so i mean you get me on a soapbox cynthia
2: no 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 no. some experts say argue neglect is worse than abuse because you cared me enough to sexually abuse me but you with the neglect you set me aside and i was nothing
3: right Right, so I don't think we're addressing all the correct problems. We're addressing some of the problems, but just throwing more money at it and saying, hey, I'm gonna give you, birth parent, another $300 a month to take care of your child. That's not fixing the underlying problem, which is her own trauma. Another thing we don't do is give birth parents alternatives at the beginning. When you have a child that's born drug exposed, you know, say the parent was using meth and the baby's born exposed at the hospital, Looking at that, and she's already had two children removed, what are the chances of a successful reunification in the future, long term, that that child will will grow up to be a successful adult? If you look at that, what can we do to give that birth parent real options instead of work the next plan? But who is we? Who is we? That's so it's going to be the child protection worker because the training to them is put them on a plan. This is what they everyone will say. The statute says you must put them on the plan or do this. But I think that we need to work with the individual and give her some I mean, honor her and say, what what do you think the best plan for your child is? Ask her that question and say, you know, I can't let you take this baby home. Do you have other alternatives? Would you want to consider a permanent plan with a relative or an unrelated adoption? Or what are some other things? And instead, we, we keep passing new statutes with new check boxes of here's what you must do. You do this, then you do this, then you do the third thing. And if she fails that... She, She doesn't have transportation to get to the parenting course or she doesn't have the job you're supposed to have within six months because she doesn't have the education to get the job and she doesn't have daycare and 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 you just you know, all of us would fail. If you continue to pile enough weight on our shoulders, we will collapse. And I just and that's disrespectful. You would never come and put a thousand pounds on me. But we'll do that emotionally on a birth parent who has had all this trauma that you can't see because, you know, you look fine, but they inside, they are not fine. And so when we give them, you must get a job, you must get through drug rehab, you must take this parenting class, that's like putting a thousand pound weight on top of me. They will not be successful. And then we will tell them you're, fail- you're a failure. So we need to work with them on the front end to give them some other options
1: you, is there any state out there right now that's doing it correctly? It's a model for Texas to look at.
3: Here's the hard thing. It, we, we, all right, you want to make an argument? Maybe maybe Rhode Island is doing it well. I, I don't really know. I can't speak to that. But would you take the Rhode Island system and put it on Texas? So that's the hard thing. Every state I have looked at who has done the privatization has struggled mightily. And I don't know that any state is doing it Uh, as well as they thought they would when they came up with the grand idea to do this. You say
2: privatization, Heidi, uh, real quickly before we keep going on. In 2017, uh, the legislature mandated that Texas move toward privatization of the foster care system. Can you please summarize uh, what privatization of foster care means?
3: Right. So in Texas, we're rolling it out one region at a time. And for the North Texas area, it's only it's we have three different sections of one region. So it, it initially, phase one was that the foster care service providing to the children was privatized. So in in you know, Fort Worth, one organization takes all the children that are coming into foster care from the state and they must find a placement. So they subcontract with other organizations. And then each region is starting to add a similar phase. Phase two, which is the last phase, is that that organization, that private organization will now take over case management where they work with the birth family. So the state removes the child and makes that initial decision. You go to court, then the private organization takes over management of the case, helping the birth parents get their services or getting them to a private agency that can help them get those services. And then they take care of the children. So that's the privatization. So the state is paying a private entity to then contract with other private companies and entities in their area. And the theory is that you have local resources and that the local agencies know those local resources and that the local uh, umbrella organization has a relationship with everyone and they can find the best op- option for the children. So again, in El Paso, that pri- a private organization there would be looking for different resources than what you might look for in Fort Worth. Um, has it worked the way everyone wanted? I, would, I don't think anyone believes that, that it does. It is definitely a broken apart system where every region will have a different organization managing it. They're supposed to be working together and hopefully in the future, that will continue to, to move into a, a, a good direction. It's hard to say today if we think it will be successful if we look back 10 years from now.
1: Heidi, my last question for you is if, if you were to be able to magically just take over everything down there in Austin, and Heidi Bruegel Cox, you are in charge. Wave your wand. What would you do to right this ship?
3: I would, you know, I think it starts with the people, and you and we all have to quit looking at our own program and our and trying to protect ourselves. And we need to say what is the best for each individual child? Not even a group of siblings, but what is best for each child in that sibling group? What is best for each birth parent, and treat each individual with respect and honor. And then everyone who's working with those children and families need to be communicating. We have a system that that has a CASA and an attorney ad litem and a guardian ad litem and an attorney for the each parent and an attorney for the district attorney and then the whole judicial program. Everyone is, is managing their own silo, and so I think we need to require all the silos to get together with every child very regularly and communicate. I will say as part of the, I'm, I'm an attorney, as part of the legal pro- system, I see too many attorneys who never meet with their child clients. That is unacceptable. How, well,
1: well, how, how does, well, what do you mean they never meet with them? Yeah, they, never,
3: they never meet with them. Or if they, they do, it's five They minutes.
1: represent the child, but they don't go and, and, and speak to that child?
3: Correct. Correct. How well, is that allowed? It, well, the law says they shall, but they don't. So that is a judge who needs to hold the attorneys accountable. So I'll I'm, I'm tell you, we can. everyone can talk about Child Protective Services and the DFPS, but there is plenty of blame to go around about why children are not being protected. So I will tell you the judicial system and attorneys representing children, they're not doing their job in many cases either. There are judges who care deeply and who hold everyone accountable but that is not gonna be the standard everywhere. And there is a statute that addresses it. So if Representative Frank says, we wanna keep giving new statutes to give more direction, they've done that. The legislature did their job. Now we as practitioners working with these children must do our jobs.
2: Heidi, there are former foster children I know who aged out of the system who will be listening to this podcast and will applaud you for being honest because these are the things they went through while they were in the system. What do you say to these people who have aged out and are listening now as a source of encouragement uh, for those coming through the system now with you speaking out?
3: Well, you know, good good job of being where you are. I mean, you have made, you, you, you've successfully survived a system that is not easy to survive. And keep talking, you know, make your voices heard. Call Cynthia, call Jason, call Representative Frank and let people know your story. The reason we're hearing these stories is because people have been willing to speak out. Jason, you asked at the beginning, why, you know, is this a new problem? Why have we not heard this in the past? Because people didn't talk about it in the past. That's the only way we'll know is when people in your community talk about the trauma that they've suffered and at the hands of even the people who are there supposed to protect them.
1: Heidi, that's good insight. Thank you for the time. So Heidi really is Cynthia. Heidi's on the front lines of this as an attorney. She deals with this. She talks to these children. She talks to to all the folks here. It's it's interesting to hear her side because she doesn't really have a dog in this fight. She's not an elected representative. She doesn't have to appease constituents. And you know, uh, account for how money is being spent.
2: Yeah, that's why we brought her in to give us that outside perspective, uh, and like I said, to educate. And she hit the she hit the nail on the head. We have to talk to these children. No one is talking. That's crazy. To boss I am, and that's why I know what I know. And they're the ones who motivate me to fight for them because they tell me they don't matter. This week, a child told us she sat there and explained how she's been in the system for eight years. She's about to turn 15. Mm. All of her siblings have managed to get adopted except for her because she's not good. The only thing she has been taught is that she's not good and that she doesn't matter. So we sat there and told her she is good and that she is a child of God, and she wept. She had never heard that before, Jason, because people aren't taking the time talk with these
1: children how is i don't understand how it's even possible how how do these i, I don't want to bash anybody about how do state caseworkers how do attorneys on this how is no one talking to the kids
2: no one's holding anyone accountable
1: that's d- how that doesn't i, d- I mean we're, we're going to talk to representative frank in just a minute Ch- chairman frank about some of this but you talk to the kids from your wednesday's child segment and I've said that that is the most important work we do is. at WFAA is, is that because it's, it's tangible stuff. We get kids into homes and that, no other story we do at WFAA even gets close to that, in my opinion. I've told you that plenty of times in the past. Um, but it, it's, it's just remarkable that, that we remain in this place, in this state, for 30 or
2: 40 years for a federal lawsuit that is still ongoing. And by the way, you know, and we, we did explain what the federal lawsuit is, and, and for listeners who continue to have questions, reach out to me. Uh, we will get those questions answered. But I often think about how do we get out of this? And Jason, I truly believe it's going to take every single person rising to the occasion, every listener today, picking up the phone, calling their representative, finding out who their representative is in their district and asking that representative, what are you doing to protect foster children? Or like Representative Frank recommended, help someone who you know is fostering a child. Mm. If they are a loving foster parent, it's, it's hard. It's a struggle. Help them yeah. or sign up to be a court appointed special advocate a CASA or find out Uh, who a nonprofit organization is in your world and support them. There are many things we can do. We just have to do it. Yeah.
1: And the state's throwing money at this. The state has given pay raises to these frontline workers, these case agents from CPS. There's high turnover rate there, yet we still see the headlines. The Texas Tribune had a story the other day uh, talking about 100 kids died in CPS custody or foster care custody over the last two years. I, I don't know how how that's even possible. A lot of these kids were a little older. They may have had some some issues, but still, the fact that kids are dying or sleeping in offices is is what we're going to talk about with our next guest here, uh, Representative uh, Chairman Frank. Uh, I know you're on the line here with us. Uh, before we get to you, Cynthia, you met him because you guys had a similar journey.
2: We sure did, Representative Frank, and I both adopted children from the foster care system, so. We understand what's happening, both on a professional and on a personal level. We're both passionate about it, and uh, I hope that we can encourage our listeners to get passionate as well.
1: Let's start out with a basic question. How would you describe the state, uh, the current state of Texas's foster care system?
0: Uh, In need of a lot of improvement. Uh, you know, I always uh, say there's a lot of great things that go on in, in, in DFPS. We rarely, if ever, hear about them, any of the successes. Uh, and we hear about the, 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 the very big, bold failures. Um, I think there's a lot of things that are going better in CPS, uh, in, in DFPS, however you want to refer, uh, frame it. Uh, but I think there is a constant need for improvement.
1: And, and just for our listeners, the, the acronyms here, too. Department of Family and Protective Services, DFBS. Yes, yeah, so the
0: Department of Family and Protective Services is the umbrella agency that's over child protective services and the much smaller and lesser known adult protective services. So, Gotcha. Uh, that is all uh, Department of Family and Protective Services, so I will try not to use too many acronyms. No problem at all. You deal with it all the time. Cynthia, go ahead.
2: Oh, my goodness. Yes, Chairman Frank, first of all, thank you for clearing your schedule to be here today. I know you're doing it because it's important and uh, you certainly practice what you preach. You are the parent of six boys, two of them (laughs) adopted from foster care. So we couldn't have a better guest on today. Uh, You're also the author of HB 567. Can you give us a quick summary of HB 567?
0: Yeah, so uh, 567 was a product of really four years and a whole, whole, whole lot of input, but it essentially refines and redefines the neglect statute. Um, you know, most people don't realize about only about 25% of the kids that come into the foster care system are for what or for abuse. You know, those things that make the news, the kid in a cage, the you know, burn with a cigarette, sexual abuse. That's about 25%. It's hugely important. And it's important that we can focus on that. But 75% of the kids that come in foster care are, are for neglect. And neglect can range from very severe neglect that probably all of us would acknowledge uh, is is bad and needs to stop. To the very, you know, to my house is too dirty, or I let my kid, my ten-year-old, go to the park too long, or, um, or or I'm or the parent took uh, marijuana and somebody thinks that you should have your child removed because they took marijuana. Things like that. Um, and so it's a redefining of just the neglect statute. It's not. It doesn't change the abuse part of it. It changes the neglect statute to better define and refine. Uh, what is neglect in the state? Um, if I if I, I know it's a podcast, we can talk a little longer. Yeah. One of the reasons was there's tremendous difference in removal rates around the state. You had places that were removing at four times the state average, and they are not places that there's any indication that there's actually any more abuse. We were just we just had extremely aggressive prosecution and judges pulling kids out for things that wouldn't even get a second look in other parts of the state, and wow. so. That was that was kind of the thought behind it, and and so anyway, that's that's your long answer, that's your po- policy wonk answer.
2: So so with a year under your belt now with HB five sixty seven, we can now start looking at whether this law is actually functioning for foster children. And as you know, Chairman, I work closely with Foster Children Weekly. No, you do. Uh, yeah, I work closely with. And thank you for that, including
0: having one of your own.
2: It absolutely, like yourself, uh, I try to practice what I preach. Um, I work closely with CPS caseworkers as well, and I talk with them on a weekly basis. And several caseworkers told me that workers, because of this new law, are being forced to prematurely close cases because of it, and that it's leaving some kids unsafe. What are your impressions on how the law is functioning?
0: Well, I think anytime you make changes, there there are there are challenges with it and challenges of interpretation. I, I, I think there is no question there are times where in the past somebody would have been removed. But anytime, time, you know, again, you, you'd have to almost go through the statute. If there is abuse, we should remove. There is a, a far different, and I think the three of us on this podcast would would perhaps disagree over whether a child should be removed or whether a child should not. But frankly, that shouldn't be the interpretation of a CPS employee as to whether or not they should be removed. It should be whether or not there is actual abuse or neglect as defined by statute. So I am quite certain there are times when somebody kind of wishes they could be removed, but they simply don't have proof. And that I don't know that that's an unintended consequence. I think that is a consequence of the law that we wanted. We don't want children removed just because somebody thinks they might should be removed. I think one of the things that nobody wants to admit is how much damage and how much trauma is caused by the act of removal itself. You know, sometimes we, we, we under in CPS, and I've seen it, operates under the, well, better safe than sorry. Better safe than sorry, so I better remove the kid just in case there's something bad might happen. Well, by definition, when you remove that child, something very bad just happened. I mean, I think all of us would, if you remove a child from a home, that is a nine month minimum process. So you are putting a child in a, what we also acknowledge often as an unsafe, either a foster care setting or group home setting. So you know you are causing damage. And what we have done is tweak up the, uh, move up slightly um, what has to be done before that child is removed.
2: But these are CPS caseworkers—at least the ones I'm speaking with—who are actually going into these homes. And one of them told me, actually, to plead with you for the safety of the children to quote bring back non-emergency removals. Are, let me ask you this: Are you talking with these CPS caseworkers? I mean,
0: any of the CPS caseworkers are welcome, and many of them do call call me. I have not—I have not heard that, and so maybe I need to be talking to. Uh, I mean, I've, I have talked to dozens of CPS caseworkers. I haven't talked to anybody that has brought this particular thing up, but I am sure. happy to, you know, they're they're well they are welcome to call my office, and I am happy to talk with them about it.
1: Chairman Frank, House Bill five sixty seven you were talking about is, is addresses one thing, kind of streamlines part of the process there. Though people have been seeing DFPS Department of Family Protective Services and Child Protective Services. In news headlines all across the state for the last decade, if not longer, um, as the chairman of the House Human Services Committee, what other piece of legislation, what other legislative fix are you looking at for when lawmakers return in January? Well,
0: I think there's there's a lot. Um, I, one of it, it's not really legislative. It, the agency just needs to be run better. They need to implement things better, whether it's community-based care, whether it's consistency around the state uh, the reality is the the problems of really inconsistent removals would not be there if if the agency was run consistently around the state right if the training were consistent around the state so so that is that is there it's not really something i can that that part i can't really control so the two things i guess i would i would say would be one i think we want to provide more services in the home you know, we have a pilot program to provide services in the home. I've I've talked about the trauma caused by removal, and I'm not against removal. There, are, I mean, if a child has been abused, literally abused, they should absolutely be removed. You know, sexually, physically, that neglect is where I have problems. Unless it is severe neglect, and frankly, Cynthia, I would say, unless it is an emergency, they should not be removed, and we should try to provide those services so, in the so home. How, which is why we passed, which is why we passed thirty forty one which is the Families First Act for two different pilot programs to start to provide those services in the homes through HB 3041, through the, through the federal Families First Act. Yet, we're nine months down the road after session and there is very little, if any, implementation being done on that. And I think we ought to be asking the agency, why is that not, you know, honestly, why was that not started in May? And it's like, well, we've got other stuff. We've got this and that. That is that needs to be implemented. I can't implement that myself.
2: Can you walk us through the process of how the state is trying to implement this? That the process to strengthen well, there is, the family. I mean,
0: really, our our legislation was, and we we can come on a second one, I guess, and do this, but our legislation was to set up the pilot program because there is not a framework. You know, one of the challenges with the way the CPS system operates is you have to remove the child before you can provide services. And frankly, that's the way the federal is set up. Okay. So, and when you think about it, so I have to, I have to pull a child out of the home. And then in many cases, I'm going to do, I'm going to tell the parent, they have to go to parent training, which is like teaching somebody to swim when there's no water. If the parent, if the kid's not at home and it wasn't an emergency, why did I remove them? Well, I remove them because I want to provide services. What well, that's, so, what we're trying to do is provide more of the services in the home. And we haven't stopped removals at all, by the way. all I mean, literally, if you look through that bill, all we did was raise the bar slightly on, you You know, we're trying to get just that far, you know, the, the least neglect situations where you have to decide, is that really worth removing the child? and and I, And I know, look, I know there's some people that, And anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jason. No,
1: no. I'll just ask you, Chairman, you you mentioned uh, another House bill there, 3041-567. And you're saying essentially, if I'm hearing you right, that you're trying to get the agency itself to actually start implementing some of these things. Yeah.
0: Do you guys have a rogue agency on on your hands here? I wouldn't. I certainly wouldn't call rogue. I think it is uh, overwhelmed sometimes. Sometimes it lacks the discipline to implement things uh it's it's kind of one of the challenges we have awesome a lot of awesome uh caseworkers and that kind of but the sometimes to get big programs run you need very disciplined step by step instructions of how to do it and it just hasn't been done. Um I, I yeah wrote, and I will say this also they have an unbelievable number of people telling them what to do. If you look the judge I mean the judge I mean Judge Jack has literally Two people that make four hundred and twenty-five dollars an hour, and a whole team of people—you know, each of them have like almost twenty people that are also paid hundreds of dollars an hour—to crawl all up inside the agency and give it different directions every day. And then we have obviously legislators coming on and saying what needs to be done, and the Senate has their opinion, and the governor's office, and then they get something in the news. Some of sometimes that's true, sometimes that's not, and they're constantly reacting to that. So they. They operate in a continual loop of crises and uh, conflicting directions from a lot. Of, yeah, it's a, now, it's a challenging agency to say the least.
1: Yeah, no, no doubt. Now they're getting yowletics uh, piling on top of them here. <laughs> um, well, and, and,
0: yeah, and, and and I would say this on you know from a from a newscast and from a soundbite standpoint. You know, if I go out, I, I've used this example. If I go out today and I get mugged, heaven forbid, and I get mugged. The article in the paper is not gonna say, Wichita Falls police allow Representative Frank to get mugged. If there's any of the 7 million children in the state that something bad happens to, the news article is CPS allowed that to happen, right? And they are not omniscient, omnipresent, nor do we want them to be. And so I think we we have to distinguish sometimes between when CPS was neglectful and hmm. when something happened that was really unpreventable and that but that doesn't make a good news story. That doesn't make a good I'm not blaming you all. It doesn't make good politics.
1: Makes for a good podcast, though. But go ahead. Dustin. Yeah, That's right. Makes for a good <laughs> podcast where
0: you actually yeah, right. care about trying to get to root causes and, and come up yep. with solutions. So.
2: Uh, Chairman, let's talk about CWOP, uh, the term CWAP. Uh, first of all, can you explain what CWAP is?
0: Yeah. So, CWOP is children without placements. It's essentially children that come into the system that you don't have a foster home ready for them to go to or a a, a treatment center. And so, what happened, yeah, I guess a year ago, we, we had it where there was virtually nobody coming into CWOP. Then it went up to a couple hundred. Uh, More than
2: 400.
0: More. Yeah. I'm sorry. It, yeah. There's how many there's two different ways to measure it the how many people come in at any given time during a month and then how many are in at any particular time so there were more yeah, than 400 in July
2: than, of last summer
0: yeah more than more than 400 were coming in, came in at any point during the month there were as many as just a little over 200 that were in at any one time during that month and so
1: just for just for clarity because you you guys live and breathe this stuff uh, but but CWAP is essentially when the state will remove a child but not have a place to put that child a bed for that child
0: is that right that's correct. And, and most of these, and this is what was really challenging about it. Again, most people think of CWOP or children without placement as this child that was abused. And, and, and most of the CWOP, and, and they're still the state's responsibility, but are uh, almost child abandonment. They're 14, 15, 16-year-old kids whose parents have lost control and say, hey, it's your job to take care of them. And they hand them over. And so they are the hardest of the hardest to take care of. Um, what has happened is with with, the, with those older kids that are acting out very, in many cases, very aggressively, in some cases, sexually, um, there has been limited place to put them. I mean, everybody wants to gripe about it, but nobody actually wants to spend time with these kids. And what has happened, and this is where I get frustrated with some of the well-intentioned orders of the judge, we were closing down everywhere that takes care of the high needs kids. Because if you're taking care of high needs kids, guess what? Your adults are gonna be in fights with those kids, oftentimes defending themselves from an attack, or, but you're gonna be written up and then you lose your license. Well, we have had tons of, of organizations and I'm sure there were some bad actors, but I also know that there were some very good actors that, are try, that were doing their level best to take care of these kids that they kept getting written up, they're on heightened monitoring with the courts and they're like, hey, you know what? We're not gonna be in this business anymore. So what you ended up with, you didn't have an influx of more kids. The reason you lacked beds is because basically people kept saying, I'm shutting down my regional treatment center. I'm shutting down, I'm shutting down, I'm shutting down. And all of a sudden we ran out of beds and the agency was very slow to react to it. Uh, because that's when it got up to the 400 a month or, or a little over 200 that were actually in CWAP at any given time. Uh, that number has come down pretty dramatically over the last, it's, it's about a third of that now. Uh, it still exists. You still have kids that come out and there's literally no place to put them. And so what's happening is you have state employees that are watching them in hotels. Churches. You know, di- different places. Yeah, I'm sorry. Churches.
2: They're yeah, watching churches, them in hotels, they're, they're, churches, CPS yeah. offices. Yeah, CPS um, offices, and- and, and and I understand your frustration with um with shutting down these residential treatment centers, and and I agree with you. Some good things do happen in these treatment centers, uh, but a lot of bad things happen in these treatment centers as well. Absolutely. Again, again, Chairman, I talk with these yeah. kids weekly. The ones who are in these RTCs, uh, and yeah. they talk about the ones in San Antonio. They talk about the ones all throughout the state, and how they're horrible, terrible places. I have had yeah. multiple multiple foster children tell me, I'd rather stay at home and be abused by the people who love me than be abused by strangers. And one caseworker um, asked me to put a challenge out there to lawmakers. He said, quote, I dare you to come to meet with these kids where they are. I triple dare you. Talk to these kids face to face. Ask them, what you can do to find a solution. Then you can take notes from the children themselves instead of from hearings. Have you personally had the opportunity to speak with uh, one of these kids without placements?
0: Uh, I, no, I have not, that's a good, that's a good idea. I have, I have had them in my home, but I haven't had them, meaning I've had about <laughs> a 15 year old that would have been in CWOP in my home for several months, but not. I haven't been at the CWOP locations happy to, you know, I really am happy to do that. I I think we have addressed some of that. You know, at the end of the day, and and really each of these is like an individual case. And And I will say this, I know these two things to me kind of tie. There are people that are frustrated that we are not removing some of these neglect cases. But I think as an agency, we have to focus on the highest need kids. And, you know, does it make sense to bring somebody who, is over on this farthest end spectrum when we literally don't have capacity to even take care of these high-risk kids or should we focus you know it's funny because as, as an agency if you've looked at what we've done over the last 20 years the state has has increased by a multiple of six literally six times more money coming in from the state into dfps in the last 20 years do we feel like it's run a lot better there are some things, honestly, that I would tell you are better. More kids are going into kinship. There's actually, when you really look at some long-term trends, there are some good long-term trends. Um, I, I wouldn't say that on the whole, it is run significantly better now than it was 20 years ago, though.
2: I got some despite, numbers. Go ahead. I'm sorry.
0: No, no. I said just despite the funds, that funds aren't everything. Sometimes we need to relook at what we're doing. And I, I really believe that we need to focus less and less. We, we need to make sure we're not pulling kids on the least neglect side of it into a system that is simply not running well. We need to kind of uh, make this smaller and smaller until we can actually say we're running a good agency and we're not there now.
2: And you're talking about dealing with these children who have the most behavioral issues, the ones that many caseworkers tell me are just are dangerous, uh, who have attacked caseworkers in these uh, when they are uh, dealing with these CWAP cases, again, children without placements. I got some new numbers today from CPS. Uh, There are now currently 71 children in alternative placements. And uh, that's significantly down from the 416 from last July. Uh, at the moment, um, one caseworker said that she, in fact, I spoke with her this morning, she's working six-hour shifts or more caring for these kids. She said it's exhausting. She says it's dangerous and uh, for her and for several of her colleagues. And the question here that she had was, can CWAP be completely outsourced to a private company and not something else for CPS workers to be responsible for? Is that something that you would support?
0: Well, I think it, when you look at it, CWAP, the, the, all of the kids have been outsourced to third parties. CPS does very little of this. CPS is, as a last resort, those workers are being brought in because We have crushed the capacity of the providers, right? All of these kids have been in private, nonprofit, you know, RTCs or foster homes. It's not until you get where they're literally, you know, when you shut down all of those, then the CPS employees are being brought in as a last resort to take care of them. So frankly, the CPS employees, most of those are not used to ever taking care of kids. That's not what they do. Most CPS employees don't take care of kids. They do the paperwork, they do the oversight of the people that actually do it. Uh, It's kind of funny. The CPS employee is saying, I don't want to take care of them. I want some private employer to take care of them. And then we beat the hell out of the private employer. Anytime they make a mistake on CPS for the kids that we don't want to take care of ourselves.
2: Right. But this CPS worker said she's not trained to do it. And and she's even having to administer medicine to these kids.
0: Yeah. And that, and totally agree. That's a problem. And obviously, you know, there has been a lot of focus on that. It's, it's hard when you're trying to, you know, we put money is not the only thing because literally some of these people are saying to us, we don't care how much money you pay us. We will not operate if our whole entity is going to be put under heightened monitoring. We're not going to do it. You can't, basically, you can't pay us enough to work with the state of Texas is what many of our providers are saying. And then the, then our CPS workers are saying the same thing at some point. Um, I don't know. I mean, it would be nice if Judge, I'm not going to throw it all at her feet as well either, because I, some of the stuff that she's done has helped. But I think this is something she has continued to say, you can't tell me this matters. You can't tell me this matters. I'm like, well, you know, all you have to do is look at the numbers and the number of people that have said, I can't work with y'all. And you look at the, pro- the problem is not, we have a bunch of kids coming in. The problem is providers are saying, I can't deal with them. And when we're talking in, in this them, current situation,
1: Chairman, you're talking about the the, the two court monitors that uh, Judge Jack is appointed to oversee. Is that right?
0: Yes. Well, it's not it's not just the two court monitors. It's the two court monitors and their twenty
1: their staff minions. Yeah, their their staff that goes along with that. Uh, let me zoom out j- just a tad here. You talked about throwing money at it. You guys gave twelve thousand dollar pay raises to a lot of frontline CPS workers. You've laid out issue after years, issue. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in this, there's not enough beds for for some of these kids to, to sleep in. Uh, two things. Number one, why why can't Texas get this right after all these years? And and secondly, what do you think is the root of the problem? I realize those are two wide questions <laughs> I'm asking you there. But no, you it, are. is it is it changing leadership at the top? I mean, I, I, some of the stuff's been done before and, and
0: we still can't seem to get the results that we want. Well, I I I always think better leadership you have is always better. I mean, I you know there's some things I love about Jamie Masters, and some not is certainly not all on her, and she's dealing with a lot of different issues. One, I think we have to define what we really want. I, I would ask you this: with 50 states in the country, you tell me who is doing it right. Who that's gets one the of, That's one of the questions actually, on my list. That's one of the questions well, on my list. Who it, is doing it, it right? Yeah, it was it was a it was kind of a rhetorical question. <laughs> no one thinks it's right because the way we measure. We measure you're supposed to take care of 7 million people and do it perfect. Well, I had six kids. I can't believe they all lived. (laughs) Okay. It is not, you know, it's funny. The CPS system is made up of a whole lot of people who don't have children that want to tell everybody who has children how to raise their children. If you look, the number of people, not that's not as maybe too much of a blanket statement, but it is amazing how many and then we have a whole lot of organizations that actually don't provide services to kids that go around telling everyone else how to take care. You know what I mean? Literally, if you look at the organizations that operate in the CPS arena and then ask them, what service do you provide for kids? It's like, we don't provide a service to kids. We just talk about how other people ought to do it better. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, why don't you actually provide service to kids? And then we may not need that. So I think that's uh, a rambled there, but The bottom line is I think we have to measure what is it we're trying to actually accomplish. I think there's a lot of things that are done well. We never hear about them. You know, you've got two people here that the kids were probably made better because CPS intervened. They brought the child from somebody who wasn't taking care of them and was either abusing them or simply neglecting them to the point where we removed them, got them through a court system that is burdensome, but also important to protect the, you know, you have this tension between parental rights which is very, very, very important, and the safety of the child, and then gets them to somebody else. And we never, ever, ever talk about the uh, successes. There's tons of successes in CPS. But anytime, so I think sometimes we're not even looking at the data. We are simply looking at the anecdote. We're listening to the caseworker that's mad. I had a caseworker text me the other day telling me it's been six years since they've had a pay raise. Well, Mm -hmm. no, it hasn't. We literally did a thousand dollar a month raise four years ago for 75% of the agency. And by the way, we did it with the kids, people that actually worked for kit with kids. So then go work with kids and you can have that pay raise. So Mm. sometimes you're just simply not getting accurate data and we say it's terrible and it's not. And then sometimes they do things that you just go, I don't know how that happened. You know, it just, you have human error. Yeah, And then sometimes you have really, unintelligent lawmakers that do dumb things and uh,
2: yeah. Yeah.
1: We're, we're, we're almost done with you here so I, I'll, <laughs> I'll let cynthia ask you another question
0: here
2: chairman frank you you have fostered and adopted two beautiful children you have a history you better call fighting. them handsome
0: or they're going to get mad if they ever hear this <laughs> okay. handsome
2: young men uh, you have a history of fighting this battle sir you're obviously passionate about helping foster children and i can tell you are working hard for them do you feel that your colleagues share your passion or are you a lone soldier fighting an exhausting battle
0: (laughs) it'd be nice to go i'm the only one who cares and i think honestly i've worked in this area enough i think everybody thinks they're the only one and they're not there are a lot of colleagues that do it. Senator Colcourse has done, it, done some amazing things and she really, she has a passion for this. Uh, and there's a number of colleagues in the house. Everybody knows its importance. I mean, I really don't know anybody that doesn't think this is important. As you know, the state has a, a, a whole lot of, you know, the electric grid's also important. The, you know, uh, I mean, there's tons, public education is important, higher education. So everybody kind of specializes in their thing. Uh, because of my background and because of my chairmanship, I I certainly spend a lot more time on this, but I don't pretend that I'm the only one. And I don't feel, um, I mean, sometimes I get very frustrated because sometimes I don't feel like um, we're making the progress that I would like to see. Um, But my question is always, are we making it better? And I think, you know, we're taking, sometimes we're taking one step back and then two steps forward and I think if you really look at most of the twenty-year trends, and I try to operate on twenty-year trends, which frankly is even before me—I've been in it ten years. Most of the twenty-year trends say we're doing a better job. Are we where we should be? No. Are we where we can be? Absolutely not. Most of the failings are human error, and and I guess as long yeah, anyway. So I, I don't feel I don't feel alone. Uh,
2: yeah. How can I'm our okay. listeners help? I get it every week. I you know Izzy I can't adopt a child but what can I do to what can I do to help lift foster children
0: You can help those who adopt help those who you know everybody wants to change the world nobody wants to change their block You know what I mean it's like you can help if somebody else is adopting one of the things you need is respite care You can give somebody a weekend off when they've adopted somebody You know one of my favorite times is after 9 months of fostering when we finally adopted the boys, we actually could go on a date because until then you've got to have, it's crazy. You've got to have a licensed person to do it, which that's a whole nother issue. And, you know, but but you can help those who are actually doing it. I, I've said a long time, you know, kids only go into the foster care system or 99% of the kids go into a foster system because of a really horrible decision made by a parent you know, really irresponsible, selfish. I mean, somewhere I'm sure we have the one where both parents died in an auto wreck and no family was there, but 99% of our kids go in because self-inflicted wounds by parents. Hmm. They only come out when there's somebody on the other side to catch them. And we need more people like that. And we need to shorten the time in that in between those two things. And that's really what I think trying to do with the foster care system is is intervene less often and make the time shorter um, between this time where we said this person can't raise this child anymore and the time this person is taking it.
2: And Jason, we're going to have to have a whole other podcast about the more than 1200 uh, kids who aged out of foster care last year.
0: Yeah. We'll go to Wichita
1: Falls for that one, Chairman. Will you uh, show us some? I'm
0: happy to host y'all. And I really look, I, I appreciate y'all's interest in this, I get really frustrated at the 30-second sound bites because you only talk about, yeah, this is a complicated issue that requires yeah, yeah. some serious people. And uh, Cynthia, people are welcome to call, I mean, text my office, put that down in paper. Um, you know, if, if caseworkers have something, I talk to the ones here locally, I talk to others that reach out, but I do want, I do want to hear um, to try to get this as right as we can.
1: Chairman, thanks for the time. Really appreciate the insight. We'll be watching to see what happens uh, come January when you guys go back to back to Austin, back to the Capitol, back to work. All right, thank y'all very much. I
0: appreciate the time as well. Cynthia,
1: you went to school in North uh, University of North Texas you ever been up to Wichita Falls? Go Mean Green.
2: I have been to Wichita nice. Falls. It's it's a charming little place. Hey, Shepard Air Force Base. It is,
1: yes. And, and you know what? I mean, total left turn here, but Shepard Air Force Base up there, they train fighter pilots from all around the world. People don't realize that, but people will come, these pilots will come in from other countries, you know, even Russia in the past, no longer, NATO. Sure, NATO countries, and they will train them up there in Wichita Falls and they will, you know, these, these pilots will take off and fly sorties all over the Southwest, it's uh, it's remarkable. But we do need to take up Chairman Frank on that uh, invite to head up to Wichita Falls and let him show us around up there. And as he said, 30-second sound bites cannot really grab this story. And if you're still listening this far into the podcast, thank you, but you know this ain't no 30-second soundbite story uh, that, that we're really diving into here today.
2: Well, Jason, thank you for this opportunity. We delved in. Uh, and gave this more time today than we have uh, in the past. So I want to thank you and I want to thank the listeners and I want to encourage everyone to rise up for foster children. Hopefully
1: so. Thanks for being here, Cynthia. And, and I hope your first podcast experience went well. Uh, we'll have to have you back. I'm, you know what? We could re- maybe we could replace Wheeler with Cynthia.
2: <laughs> no, I'll no, keep my
1: day job. <laughs> now, now that we know she keeps a bottle of bourbon at her desk, you'll have to tell me where you keep that for these uh, stressful days that I have sometimes. Cynthia, thank you so much. We appreciate it. And uh, thank you for listening as well to Yolitics. We'll be back again next week.
2: I'm your number one fan. You do know that. I
1: I didn't mention that early on. You listen to us all the time. And and I wrote down to to highlight that.
2: Yolitics has gotten me through many, many runs. So I just put y'all on and go for my four, five, six mile run and uh, have a good
1: time. You must take some long runs because some of our episodes uh, go on. Especially when you heard Wheeler Ask Questions.
2: He he is superb both of you are Oh my
1: gosh. Oh my gosh. Well thank you as uh, as always for listening and for uh, for setting up this whole podcast today we appreciate it.
2: Peace out.